Of medicine today. This is John Murphy. My pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. George Hussey. Dr. Hussey is an assistant professor in the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, Department of Pathology. Dr. Hussey, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. The Dr. Hussey's interests are in tissue engineering. I'd like to explore with him some of the pioneering work that he's doing. Dr. Hussey, tell us a little bit about your work in tissue engineering. Tissue engineering is a broad concept. When we try to think about it, it's best to narrow it down to the central objective. And really, even though it seems lofty, our objective is to regrow body parts. And the main focus on this is understanding how the interplay between a physical material and the cells can accomplish this. So our work really is understanding what those substrates are that the cell prefers to grow on and how we can bias those molecular and cellular interactions to guide the next generation of therapies. So tell me a little bit about some of your accomplishments. This field in particular, tissue engineering, is different than I would say most other translational health fields. You think of something like CRISPR therapies or even uh, CAR-T therapies. A lot of that started with benchtop work and slowly built up to its place in the clinical realm today. For a lot of the ECM extracellular matrix, ECM substrates that we used, the history is different. It started in the clinic and over 20 plus years of positive outcomes, the field has now grown to understanding how these materials are working at a molecular level. So more recently, my objectives, my research pursuits have been trying to decouple this substrate, pick out the molecular components, enrich them, understand them, and try to recombine them in ways that can bias an outcome towards basically the desired repair or facilitate a reversal of diseased tissue. And so from this, we've started to isolate uh, matrix-bound nanovesicles. These are molecular components buried deep within the matrix. And we're starting to understand a lot of the intricate signaling pathways that are involved with the extracellular matrix. It's very much a combinatorial therapy. We have to keep in mind a lot of different players and there's prospective roles during the tissue engineering and regenerative medicine process. Speaking of the clinic, in my understanding, the tens of millions of people have been treated with ECM? Correct. Tens of millions of people, multiple products on the market, many companies taking advantage of a substrate like this. And where we are as a field really is how we can understand and basically nanosize or change the formulation of these materials to try to use them in ways that planar sheets cannot be used. So historically, an ECM scaffold is a simple 2D planar sheet, somewhere between seven to five inches, 10 to six, something like that, be used as a patch for hernia repair or possibly as a strip for uh, rotator cuff repair. But what we're finding now as we begin to dive into the molecular mechanisms for how these particular scaffolds can be used as a substrate for tissue engineering and organ regrowth, tissue regrowth in general, what we've come to realize is that we can start to break it apart at the molecular level. And now it allows us to put it into new formulations, things like hydrogels, into nanovesicles, into soluble components. And so we can now get very creative and imaginative for how we can use these new substrates for tissue repair. So obviously, instead of a simple implant, now we can do things like 
a systemic injection into the bloodstream, possibly injection of uh, bioactive components into the vitreal space behind the eye to facilitate optic nerve repair and preservation. Other studies can look into injecting ECM components into the synovial space in the knee. And so really what this does is open up a lot of new clinical applications for these regenerative medicine-based materials that are focused on extracellular matrix substrates. And then again, probably another big game-changing component of this is the adaption of the ECM into a hydrogel. And now we can go after very common problems that have unmet needs, and particularly the, these are revolve around the GI tract, things like Barrett's and GERD or ulcerative colitis, where the gel can be used as a coating to help mitigate the inflammation and drive that tissue repair process that's so desirable. What is the hydrogel? In this case, really, conceptually, what you're trying to do is take something hard and turn it into something pliable, um, injectable, easy to work with, but yet can still maintain its form. And so when you think of taking something like a belt, something very stiff, and reformulating that in such a way where it resembles something like hair gel. And now you can take that material and apply it either as a topical lotion, fill spaces with it. But basically, you've liberated yourself from that 2D restriction and the hydrogel with the water component, and it now allows it to take multiple shapes. And so you can fill irregular shapes, different types of geometries. You're not limited by that planar geography or geometry anymore. So is any hydrogel ECM technology made into the clinic? The hydrogel technology was originally invented in the Battleac Laboratory here at the University of Pittsburgh. And there have been multiple preclinical studies showing how these hydrogels can be utilized in various places, stroke, optic nerve, volumetric muscle loss. More recently, the technology was licensed from the University of Pittsburgh to a company called Ventrix, who conducted the first phase one clinical trial of an ECM hydrogel to repair tissue damage after myocardial infarction. So the results from this very early initial trial are very promising for the field in general. The particular clinical application is very invasive, injection of a gel into damaged heart tissue. So the promising results from that study will really help pave the way for using these hydrogels in a variety of different applications. So yes, it has been used clinically, and the goal now is to work on uh, large-scale manufacturing, CGMP uh, production of these hydrogels, and also the regulatory support um, involved for moving this further into various clinical applications. So I see that if I look at your publication, you've published a couple of papers on gastrointestinal tract repair with ECM. Is this hydrogel? Yes, yep. And the new publication showing the application of these hydrogels, especially in the GI tract, show not only its utility, but really bring to light another aspect of the ECM that's oftentimes overlooked. And in this case, it's a groundbreaking approach. Rather than having to remove, let's say, damaged or diseased tissue by surgery and then replacing it with an ECM component, what these studies have shown is that you don't have to remove that diseased tissue at all. In fact, the hydrogel coating is enough to instruct those cells to start to revert back to a normal, healthy phenotype. That's quite provocative because now you can think of, of course, a minimally invasive type of delivery but without the need for even surgical resection of damaged tissue. This could be a real game changer. And those early studies, preclinical studies, addressing a reversal of Barrett's and inflammation 
are very promising for future endeavors. So the, the, the applicable parts of the gastrointestinal tract other than the esophagus? Yes, the same principle applies to the lower GI tract. Publications from the Gowan Institute uh, over the last five or six years have shown that a very similar formulation can be delivered easily to, in a rat model at least, of ulcerative colitis and accelerate the healing of that damaged mucosal tissue. So this would be a type of therapy then that would not revolve around immunosuppression, that is dampening of the inflammation by shutting off the immune system, but more of immunomodulatory, working with the immune system to downregulate the inflammatory effectors and basically allow for the tissue to heal without the default response. So let's talk a little bit about matrix biology. So how does this fit into the grand scheme of ECM? In the grand scheme of ECM, I think it's important to really think about what the matrix is and how important this is, especially for mammalian life in general. We think about a conversion from a single cell to a multicellular organism, a bacteria, from a protozoa to a metazoa. One of the most challenging things that has to happen if a cell wants to start to organize in three-dimensional space is it needs a structure, it needs a substratum not only for support, but a reservoir for signaling molecules. And that is the extracellular matrix. And so it's more recently shown that the rise of multicellularity coincides with the presence of genes that can encode for proteins, which will eventually be secreted by the cell and self-assemble in the extracellular space to provide this framework for three-dimensional life. This is very important, of course, as we see in mammalian development, a single cell as it rapidly divides will sequentially turn on ECM proteins to provide that structure. And as the organism continues into adulthood, we see that same dynamic interplay, the extracellular matrix that supports the shape of the tissues, gives the physical boundaries that you see between the different components in the body, and it regulates the cell behavior and phenotype within the various locations of the body. So understanding this interplay and how the cells interact with the extracellular matrix is really the key to driving these repair processes after injury. And the more we understand these matrix molecules, how they combine and how they interact with cells will be key for our understanding and taking this technology into the next generation. And this is particularly difficult, by the way. It's a complex substrate. We know now from the Major Zone project that at any time, there's between 150 to 200 proteins, just proteins alone in the extracellular matrix that make up a matrix network. And embedded within this, you'll have lipids, polysaccharides, glycoproteins, and as we know now, microRNAs and other nucleic acids, all contributing to not only the structure, but also the biochemical function of these ECM substrates. So ECM is derived from different species. Most of it, I believe, is porcine derived. Is it source of the ECM affect these findings? This is a question that's been pondered many times, and the answer is, in some applications, yes. There are not only probably species-specific differences, but also tissue-specific differences in ECM. And so you would think that the ideal substrate for a human would be a human ECM. But what we also know is that these ECM proteins, collagen, laminin, and others, are highly conserved throughout mammals. And so you can easily supplant a pig or for instance, a cow organ for a human one. And we can do this 
particularly with ECM scaffolds, because we remove the cellular component. As long as these ECMs are properly decellularized, they will not elicit a negative immune response. You won't get rejection of the graft because you removed basically all the antigens that would be presented to the immune system. So for this reason, you can easily switch out different species and using a porcine or a bovine origin for ECM in particular is very handy for scale-up manufacturing if you plan to use this clinically. Harvesting tissue from human subjects for use clinically obviously has a lot of limitations, but the agricultural industry has a plentiful supply of exactly the substrate that we need and if prepared properly, can be used interchangeably in humans. So looking at one of your publications, I noticed there's a discussion about fiber and soluble components within a matrix. How much of the matrix is soluble? Well, good question. I'm not sure whether we can put a number on or quantify it. The soluble component of the matrix is an artifact of the extraction technique. Inside of the matrix, these morphogens and growth factors would be bound to the physical substrates, collagen or some other type of protein. And so when we process the matrix, we can now separate these out, remove the insoluble substrate that a lot of these growth factors or morphogens were bound to, and use them separately. This, for a lot of reasons, accelerates their use. They don't have to wait for the in vivo degradation of the scaffold to allow for the release of a lot of these components. So you can easily concentrate and have a more immediate effect by removing these soluble components. But their contribution overall it's probably something for future studies to really help determine. Dr. Hussey, I know one of your other endeavors is to spin out ECM therapeutics. Tell us a little bit about that activity. This, in a large way, is, I think, a testament to the innovation at the University of Pittsburgh, bringing in the researchers needed to develop a patent portfolio that could be used to develop new therapies. And really the opportunity that we had was to take this technology that we've been developing over the last five to 10 years and spin it out into a startup company to try to manufacture these substrates. Now, what's unique about this is even though ECM substrates have been on the market, as we've talked about before, for 20 plus years, these next generation products, hydrogels, soluble components, nanovesicles, et cetera, this is a new venture for tissue engineering. And we know now that you just can't make these things in the laboratory and expect that they're going to work every single time. They have to be prepared with diligence. They have to be prepared correctly. And without this, without this control, we wouldn't see the advancement of these new ECM substrates to the clinic. So ECM Therapeutics is a company that was designed to help push this technology into the clinical realm. And a big part of that is in setting up the manufacturing, making sure not only that can we scale up these new therapies, but can we make them consistently under CGMP regulations? And can we meet the regulatory requirements for these new types of therapies that would allow for the downstream clinical applications? And so that's really been an extraordinary opportunity for myself, a researcher, to take benchtop work that we've worked on over the last five to 10 years and have an opportunity now to take it to the clinic. It's really exciting and it provides a whole new perspective to the research. It becomes real because it's going to be used and that in itself is very exciting. It helps push future projects and future perspectives on this particular therapy. So how far down this track are you? Are things available for the clinic? 
Yes. So the, the progression from bench to bedside is an eye-opening experience and everything that it takes to move a great idea from the laboratory into the hospital has been a concentrated effort from a very dedicated group of people, professionals at ECM Therapeutics. And over the last two years, we have now firmly put in place manufacturing processes and other specifications that will allow us to start clinical trials, which we think will initiate probably in quarter one of 2022. The first indication that we'll go after will be repair of rectal anal fistulas, a problem for which there currently is no solution. So the company has done a great job over the last three or four years to put itself in a position to now test these next generation therapies in a clinical setting. Dr. Hussey, tell us a little bit about your philosophy and experience with translational studies. For this institute and the university to allow its researchers to take their technology and try to commercialize it is going to be a game changer, I think, for drawing in new and young and exceptional talent. I can tell you that something like this is rare right now in biomedical research. The University of Pittsburgh, putting the faith in its researchers to do this, is attracting a lot of young, new talent. It's going to retain a lot of talent, I think. And this type of approach is really going to augment the University of Pittsburgh's and also the McGowan Institute's place in tissue engineering and regenerative medicine right at the forefront and in the vanguard of it. That's one of the positive consequences of the innovation, the drive for that, that we have here at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Hussey, thank you for joining us today, sharing with us your pioneering studies and your commitments to translation of these studies into clinical use. I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us. And we welcome suggestions in terms of future projects. You reach the mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Thank you for listening. Have a good day.